0: Our gospel story this morning carries a horrifying image. Herod had been outwitted by this group that had come from the east called the Magi. And in his anger and embarrassment, he gave orders to kill all the toddlers in Bethlehem and its surrounding area. And we hear how Matthew quotes the prophet and speaks of the cries of the mothers in response to this. It said in verse 17 of Matthew 2, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's hard to imagine this. I mean... It's a confusing story on a number of levels. How could this happen, right? Uh, If Jesus came as the light of the world, how could such a terribly dark event even be associated with his coming? And yet it is. It got me reflecting this week just about everything that happens in the world, right? Why they happen, what is happening. Some think that all things happen because God intends them to happen that even the movement of a blade of grass by the wind is predetermined by and purposed by God, that nothing happens unless God commands it to happen. I mean, certainly Christian theology holds that God can do anything God wants to do, wherever, whenever, with whomever he chooses or God chooses. But claiming that God can do anything and saying that everything that happens is God, there are two very different claims. There are some theological positions that take a radical stance on sovereignty, where nothing happens without God intending it. Things good, things evil. But the narrative of Scripture and the way God's people have understood God through history does not fully support that. I mean, it may be true that all that happens is allowed by God, but even that doesn't mean that God is responsible for or has some purpose for allowing it. I mean, here's a silly example, but right now during this service, we are allowing traffic to pass on 31st Street, right? I mean, we could stop it. We could all go out there and lay on the road, Right? Or stand shoulder to shoulder, and for a while we can keep it stopped till the police showed up. But our allowing it this morning doesn't mean or necessitate that we have some purpose to allow it or some intention in allowing it. Allowing something doesn't mean intent or causation. What the scriptures support is that God is not the only one influencing things in our world. There are forces. At play. There are agencies, uh, other influences that come into play in the events that occur in our world. For example, there's a, a natural order of things. There are natural laws that are in play where we end up with storms or earthquakes or meteors <laughs> hitting the earth or, or accidents that happen that aren't necessarily planned happenings. They just occur in the natural world. God is certainly aware of them, but that doesn't mean he causes them. There's also human choice that influences the world greatly, sometimes for the good, sometimes not so much. Humans commit crimes. They start wars. We're often deeply selfish and destructive. We trash the planet, right? Sometimes those of us who are part of developed nations, we make choices that hurt developing nations. And there's a lot of things that happen that God is not intending but they happen because there are other forces in the world. Then there's the forces of culture that Paul suggests have not just human involvement, something else going on that's not really described. Paul talks about influencers that are things in heaven, quote, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones he calls them, powers, rulers, or authorities. He speaks to them. We know that sometimes that's demonic, but sometimes it's not exactly that. It's something else that we don't know. But these forces impact what we experience in the world. And then there is the demonic, right? This is, those are the, 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 the explicit forces for the destruction of the good. Sometimes it's demonic when we see things happen that make people less than human, where they're abused or there's violence or coercion. And we can discern the demonic by asking questions like this. Does the action that's happening serve to heal or to harm? Does the action we're looking at serve to unify or to divide? And it begins to help us discern what might be that that is of destruction to the demonic. Is this for the good of only one at the expense of others, or is this for the common good? Greed is referred to as having rooting in the demonic. Overreaching control has its roots in the demonic. Making something more important than God. Making it an idol. That is also called the demonic, right? So my point is, is that there are many forces that come into play in the world and many of them are not God at all. God is not the one initiating everything that happens. That being said, we can say that in whatever happens to us whether it's natural or human or cultural or demonic no matter what happens to us god can turn it for our good right we know this beautiful text in romans 828 and we know that in all things no matter what it is god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose i mean note that this says, in all things, God works for the good. It is not saying God causes all things. It's simply saying that in whatever happens in your life, God's active and present. Why? Because he's active and present in your life. And he will take whatever happens and begin to spin it for your good. Sometimes the good that God works towards, uh, that that he's actually working for you on the back of something that's happened that's bad, it's so profoundly good that people reason God must have done the bad thing in order to bring this good. But don't be confused. I mean, God does does not need evil to bring good, right? God does not cooperate with evil. It's just that God is so good that when evil hits you, God can spin it and rearrange it and reconstruct it and build your life in a way that it overcomes the evil and replaces it with good. As believers, we uh, basically follow God's pattern here. When we run into evil in the world, we're supposed to deal with it. We're supposed to overcome it. And it says in Romans 8.21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what God does. He's involved with our lives. So everything that happens that's bad, he starts to work it into good. But don't be confused by looking at the beautiful good and thinking, oh my gosh, God must have brought that evil to bring this good. No, he didn't. He's just really good. What happens, whether good or evil, our impulse should always be first to try to get a sense of discernment. What is really going on here? Then we're to resist what is evil and act with what is good. Jesus coming into the world paves the way for that. Christmas shows us God's commitment to the created order. God takes on human form in order to bring love as a creative force into the influence of the world, a force that overcomes evil, the good that overcomes evil. This move is really a a recapture, a recapitulation of what God intended for humanity right from the beginning. Remember this text. This is Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. The reason humanity was created, according to this text, was to reflect the image of God, to reflect the likeness of God into the creation. This is the why behind the emergence of human beings in this world. God wanted a reflection of God's self in this world. And the Latin phrase is imago Dei, the image of God, the image of deity. That's the biblical claim. You and I were intended to be reflections and likenesses of God Almighty. The question is, what if that's true? What if that's our holy calling? It's so interesting, a little bit of a sidebar, but notice nothing is said about belief here. That humans weren't created. I mean, I I don't know what it was, but as I was growing up in church, I kind of got the idea that this is a, a transitional place of testing and really why we're here is to decide for heaven or hell. That the reason humans exist on the planet was so that we could make that decision to believe or not to believe. But that's not what's claimed in Scripture. What's claimed in scriptures, we were created to reflect God's image and likeness here. And that the reason Jesus comes is because we failed. And Jesus is trying to get us back to that. (laughs) This may surprise you, but at the end of the story, we end up landing here. Not some place away from here. It says in Revelation 21... John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. That's referring sea in this as an image of darkness. Not that there isn't any water. But he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's almost as if we're recapturing the story that got lost. I mean, here's God creating in the beginning. Somehow the narrative goes, literal is not necessarily the point, it's just this idea, the imagery that's there. Somehow God is relating to humankind, and and in the story, he's hanging with them in the garden in the cool of the day. But somehow they reject and hide from God, And because they rejected and hid from God, it somehow broke what was going on. I think what God was trying to do is basically chum with them until they said, hey, why don't you just stay here and live in the garden with us? And we would have ended up at Revelation 21, shazam. Well, what happens is there's this rebellion. And so the whole book that we have is kind of the story of what we do in between picking up the story. God wanting to be with humanity, Humanity rejecting God, and then eventually the story gets completed. Here, the point is, matters. And the great tragedy of the biblical story is the very ones that God chose to enter into partnership with rebelled. We pushed back, and evil, which is kind of an anti-creation, appeared. So God comes and takes on human form in a manger, to recapitulate the imago Dei, and to reveal the likeness of God to the world. This opened the way for creation to become a new creation, for our humanity to turn into a new humanity, to recapture the original command of Genesis 1, where women and men living in the likeness and image of God bring a good into the world, that orders the world and overcomes anything that's against order, overcomes anything that is evil. Incarnation, then, is God's cry that creation has always mattered in God's heart and that working for good in this place matters. So as you read through the Gospels this year, this following year, watch Jesus. Watch how he was always committed to the good. Why? Because he always reflected God. Who is only good? As we follow the story of Jesus from his birth to his death to resurrection to the promised return, that whole narrative we're formed by that story, and we're formed into being the kind of we're formed into being Christians, Christ-like ones, people who continue what His mission was all about. Back in the early nineties, there were we used to people used to wear I didn't wear them, but people used to wear these bracelets. I would I'm, I'm always. Sort of thrown by cliché-ish things, but it was still kind of cool. It was the WWJD bracelets. How many remember about that? Those things. What did that stand for? Like what would Jesus do, right? It, it's, again, it's again as and I never really liked that kind of stuff, but it is a legitimate question. Do this thought experience experiment. What if Jesus were living your life with all the contingencies and circumstances of your life, how would he live it? I mean, what what good would Jesus do on your job? How would he respond in the relationships that you're in if he was in those relationships? What, what kind of, what would Jesus do in the, in the challenges and the circumstances that you face? How would Jesus respond to the pain that you experience or witness or see around you? I mean, what is the good Jesus would do and then, what should you do in response to that? When you read the Gospels, you get to know Jesus. Watch how he reacts to people, how he moves towards people in trouble. Listen to what he taught. You'll begin to discover when you start doing that in your own life, saying, if I'm to be an image of God or a reflection of God or showing his likeness, then, then maybe a good, you start looking for goods. What should I be doing? What are the goods I should be doing? The, the good for a person you meet who's disconnected in their spiritual life uh, and locked into selfishness and destruction, maybe the good is to invite them into conversations about spirituality. Or the good for a person that you know that's being crushed by poverty or by lack, maybe the good for you is to talk with them about getting uh, training or helping them to find a job. Or the good for somebody that you see that if you're concerned about people who are sick, it might be you becoming a nurse or a nurse's assistant or a doctor and running at the sick with prayers in your mouth and love in your heart and using all the tools that you can find to quash illness in the world. In politics, this is a good political year coming up, agreed? Maybe I should just say it's a political year coming up. (laughs) The good might be that you stand for the idea that all political sides have some legitimate thing to add. That you refuse to be polarized politically. Maybe that's the good. And that you dare to listen to all sides and then commit to discerning a sort of middle ground that works toward the common good. That would be so Jesus-y. But I think one of the highest and most difficult goods for all of us is how we treat each other and the people that were around in the world. It's, it's, I think the highest, most difficult good is to refuse to judge people and to actually love them instead, to set unconditional value on people and to see them as precious. I, uh, I'm most challenged about this from Jesus' life. He did not judge people. He loved people. I ran into a book in the 1980s where this Presbyterian lady named Virginia Lively had this vision that she spoke of, a vision of Jesus in her room that she saw, she said, with open eyes. So she was was a Presbyterian, so I thought, that might have happened. (laughs) You know, sometimes we charismatics just make stuff up. (laughs) This is what she wrote of her experience. Quote, the thing that struck me was his utter lack of condemnation. I realized at once that he knew me down to my very morrow. He knew all the stupid, cruel, silly things I had ever done. But I also realized that none of those things, nothing I could ever do, would alter the absolute caring, the unconditional love that I saw in his eyes. I could not grasp it. It was too immense a fact I felt that if I gazed at him for a thousand years, I still could not realize the enormity of that love. End quote. What if this is the most important way that we reflect the image of God in the world? What if this is the most important way, the clearest way, that people catch the likeness of God when we refuse to judge them, when we unconditionally love and accept See, I think that Jesus revealed the essence of God, that God is love, not not just that he does loving things, but that he actually is, in fact, love. To love, then, for us people is to splash God on them. The good loves and refuses to judge people. I, (laughs) I, I, I used to be so judgy, to be honest with you. Sometimes I still am. And I hate it, but I'm not what I was. And, and to, to not judge is to first realize that people do what they do pretty blindly. I mean, most of us do stupid just because. And this is what's at the heart of Jesus' cry from the cross when he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Such a beautiful way to look at people that are doing stupid. Just go, Father, forgive them. They obviously don't know what they're doing. Many of you have uh, heard some of the stories that I have about God's training camp for me, walking in love. I only have one life, so I only have a few stories. Um, one of them is my cat story. Um, I, I was driving along and I hit a cat when I was coming home from college one night and uh, in my Volkswagen Bug, and I pulled off the side of the road because I thought, well, you know, maybe I can save the thing take it to a vet or something and so i when i tried to approach the cat because he you know you could see he was he looked up he shouldn't have looked up anyway (laughs) it's horrible (laughs) but anyway i tried i thought i'll try to help him when he when he started he was kind of dazing kind of crazily and uh, he just got hit by a car i guess that would be what he'd do but um and then when i tried to approach him he he started being a real like demonic cat and uh it freaked me out. I mean, it just, it just it freaked me out inside. And, and then he took off into the cornfield. And I said, okay. So the next day, I was still kind of the heebie-jeebies about it. And I mentioned to a friend, I said, man, I hit this cat last night. I didn't kill him, but I don't think. But I said, uh, he just freaked me out. He started acting real weird, being <laughs> crazy like demon cat. And, and he said, Ed, um, wounded animals don't act right. And I kid you not, in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit said to me, neither do wounded humans. See, a lot of times people are just wounded. Most of us are wounded on some level. And we react in ways that aren't good because we're, we're wounded. The highest good that reflects the Imago Dei and the likeness of God is just loving people, even when they're not acting right. And it's... Refusing to judge them. I mean, there's certainly a need to judge actions and attitudes. They're either good or evil, right or wrong. But we are never to judge people who house those actions, who house those judgments. One day there will be a judgment. But that is not this day. And you and I are not the judge. Right? I kind of wish that weren't true. I mean, I wish God would just love people and we could judge them. Because judgment comes so naturally to me. And it seems so unnatural to love people. Especially without condition. I mean, we should put some boundaries on this, right? (laughs) I want to end this morning with uh, three life-altering stories about how I began learning how not to judge and rather to love. The first story, story number one, revealed to me that I am generally unfair as a person. It was back in the early 1980s. We had a day school for kids in our church, the church that I pastored in Wisconsin. And one of our kindergarten teachers got a small tattoo of a cross on her left wrist. And um, I freaked out. I mean, she was a lovely person, but I thought it was probably a sign of bad judgment on her part. And, And if so, what else is lurking in her dark soul? So I decided to fire her over it. I mean, it was, it was like an inch big. Here was the problem. <laughs> I grew up believing that it was wrong for people to get tattoos and to have their bodies pierced, right? It wasn't today. I mean, this is back before it was very popular, right? I think I remember my mom and dad saying it was wrong. And just by observation as a kid, people with tattoos... And body piercings? I mean, these were mean biker people and prisoners and biker girls. (laughs) Then I stumbled onto texts like Leviticus 1928. You know what that Bible verse says? It says, do not cut your bodies or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Amen. (laughs) Those kinds of texts leapt off the page to me. (laughs) I interpreted it as this internal resonance as the voice of God, right? So I thought about that one inch tattoo and I fumed. I thought, you know what? What kind of message are we sending to our parents? And will they be able to trust us with their children? Right? So I decided I was gonna have to fire. But I needed to mount my case, you know, put it together. So I went back to that Bible verse in Leviticus to justify my decision. And when I read it, I decided to read it in context, which is always problematic when you're opinionated punk (laughs) and a Bible thumper. In the previous verse before it talks about not cutting your body or tattooing, the same scripture, the verse before, commands all men never to cut their hair or the sides of their head or clip off the edges of their beard. So I realized if I chose to obey the command that forbids tattoos and piercings on the basis of God's word, I must by necessity of reason demand that the men in our church do grow these side mullets and wear scraggly untrimmed beards with a big praise the Lord. (laughs) So I backed down. I didn't fire her. I actually began to go over and smile and say, let me see it again. Here's what I learned from that experience. Ed Gunger is biased. I learned that I can't trust everything I believe or everything I think or everything I feel or every revelation I think I've had. That I should always be cautious about my opinions and approach others with wagon loads of generosity and respect and not just reject them out of hand because they don't line up with my thinking. This moment was huge for me and God started changing me through it. Story number two. This story revealed to me that I am a horrible person and I do not tell you it because I want to feel, well, you won't like me as much after I tell you this story. It's a horrible story. I hate it. I'm in a restaurant in La Crosse, Wisconsin. i with two other pastors. We're sitting there chatting, laughing, and all of a sudden into the restaurant comes this really crazy looking guy. He was dressed up in, I, I guess, motorcycle, kind of all leather. And his hair was white. As I looked closer, he actually had all white. He was an albino. And he kind of a nice-looking guy, but just crazy-looking, right? All tatted up. This was in the early 80s, right? So this is where I was still getting messed with by that stuff. And uh, on each arm, he had these two girls that were kind of scantily clothed and are kind of like motorcycle girls, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, they're coming in, and they're walking in and kind of making a statement, right? They're just loud without being without making a sound just by their presence here's ed gunger's response hey, hey, catch, 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 catch. see i'm facing them they're facing me and here's what i said i wonder how many diseases that guy's got and in that moment my heart sank and the Holy Spirit, I believe it was Holy Spirit, I don't know where it came from, said to me, I love them. They have worth to me. I died for them. And then the next breath, I looked at those guys. I said, guys, would you please forgive me? That was horrible. Lesson, something is deeply ugly in me. I'm broken on some level when I'm reacting to things like that. There are some dragons roaming around in my soul, uncharted, that show up once in a while and fly and breathe fire. Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged with the same measure. I don't want to be judged the way my fallen nature likes to judge others so easily. So I am deeply suspect of my reactions to those who are different than me. And it, just like driving, where you have to be constantly watchful and make adjustments as you drive, I am suspicious every time I encounter people. How am I doing? Because there's something in me that will crash me. Story number three. This story revealed to me that every once in a while I get it right. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri, huge church. I'd preached there many times, church of thousands. And this guy, that morning I wasn't preaching, but this guy came up to me and he looked really sick. And as I began to talk with him, it turned out that he said, I have AIDS. Now to put this in context... It's hard to put into words the fear that was ravaging through the country. Some of you remember this because you're old enough to remember it. I know young people think older people are stupid because we don't know anything. But you know, reality, we know a lot more than young people know. Those poor, unfortunate souls. (laughs) So there was this fear ravaging the country over the issue of HIV and AIDS. Here's a Time Magazine cover. Uh, the growing threat. What's being done. I mean, people, th- there wasn't much known about it. There was a fear that it was going to be out of control. They, did re- they didn't really know exactly how it was spread. And so all kinds of people are making all kinds of, of you know, claims about it. It was almost exclusively in the gay population. And so you had people, even preachers, claiming that it was God's judgment against gay people. And that there was, it was almost no empathy shown by Christians to this population. And as is with most frightening things, people were blowing out out of proportion. I mean, with misinformation, exaggerated claims, that people could contact HIV by simply touching an infected person or by their, or encountering their sweat Were there tears that somehow you could contract HIV? Some religious people claimed that AIDS was one of the plagues from the book of Revelations and that it would end up wiping out a third of the global population. That's the kind of chatter that was going on. Sounds silly now, but I kid you not when I tell you people were freaked out. And so here I am in this mega church in St. Louis where I had preached many times, as I said, and this guy comes up to me, he says, Ed, I said, yeah. He said, would you pray for me? And I could see how he was emaciated and really sick. And I could see, but what I did was, I, I, and this is one of my practices, that when people say some things that part of me wants to pull back from, I actually move toward them and I touch them. Um, people who have cancer have often told me, whenever I tell anybody I have cancer, people stop touching me. And so I always touch people that are sick. And I I mean, so I reached and I touched his hand. He hasn't told me what he had yet. I touched his hand and when I leaned, I said, well, what's wrong? And he said, I have AIDS. Now, you've all seen the cartoon where there's a good angel on one side and the devil on the other side? So the good angel, which I followed in that moment, just leaned in further to him the moment he said it. And the bad angel says, well, you're going to die now. <laughs> and so I leaned in. I put my hand on, leaned in closer. And I said, well, can I pray for you? He said, sure. So here's what I do, or does: I reach around and grab the back of his neck. And I pull his face to my face. And he starts crying. And, I'm, of course, I feel this grace. Jesus something glow in me. And another part of me is saying, Gail is going to kill you because you're going to die of AIDS. And he probably thinks you're gay. This is what's going on in my head at the same time that my heart is leaping with joy and leaning into this guy. These confusions. And as I held him, I just pushed past it and prayed for him. Something Holy emerged in me. It was the love of God. And it was the willingness to do whatever to touch somebody's life. And I thought to myself, to shut up the bad angels. I said, you know what? If I die from this, what a great way to die. Loving someone. The lesson was to me that in the moments where I haven't judged or have loved, It's always like heaven kisses earth. And uh, somehow you fall smack in the middle of it in the kiss. You taste glory. There's a sense of palpable peace that overtook me, a sense of purpose that filled me, an understanding that happiness is not the result of accomplishment or applause, but is the result of giving yourself to another that you'd rather run from. A sense of wow. A sense that I want more of this. So, Christmas is about God's appearing. We're called the body of Christ. The incarnation continues. Paul writes in Colossians, Christ is in you. The implication is let him out. He's the hope of glory in your life. What can that mean but that we are to be an ongoing appearing of Christ in the world a continuing Christmas for the world? This is our calling. Till Jesus comes again.